So I want to mention um, a couple things. You may have noticed um, in your bulletin today, there's an insert. So there's always a spot you can take notes on the back, but there's this insert that looks like this. Um, so many of you have signed up for groups, and if you haven't signed up for a group yet, uh, you still can, and I would still encourage you to do so. But groups are, this is, um, so we're calling it kind of our beta version, like the test version, but uh, the goal is to work out all the kinks this spring, so we're all test dummies for the spring, but the goal is that all of our groups will be on the same page, and so everything that we do in our groups is going to be based off the sermon and the text for that day, and so if you're in a group, uh, this is your study guide, this is your questions for your group, this is some time for personal reflection, and so there's what, what equates to maybe 20 to 30 minutes if you actually took the time for the whole week is what it would be in, in kind of personal reflection. So at the end of the day, if we all did that every single week, at a minimum, we'd spend one hour a week kind of with God with 30 minutes on, in kind of wrestling through some scriptures, 30 minutes on Sunday, and then 30 minutes during the week. And if you go to a group, that's two hours. So for some of us, that's more than we've ever done. But just imagine what, what might happen in our heart and our mind and our life if we just took the time week in and week out to do that. So I'd encourage you to take that home, kind of look over it, because uh, if you're in a group, they're going to ask you about it. They're going to ask you, hey, in your personal reflection time this week, what did you think of this scripture? Or what did it say to you? Or what did you begin to understand? And if you, like in a group, I mean, you can say, I don't know, I didn't do it. That's fine. Like, totally welcome. However, if you're like me, you're like, dang it, I hate answering questions like that. Um, I'd rather have an answer. So, there you go. Over the past few weeks, we've been exploring this idea that it's okay to not be okay. This reality that for many of us, that we try to fix our lives, and sometimes we can't. We don't know what to do. We can't do it on our own. And so three weeks ago, we talked about anxiety and how, for some of us, it's debilitating. How we're just anxious about what may happen. And so it's the kind of this thing that just messes with us. And then two weeks ago, we talked about suicide. And how many of us have maybe wrestled with those kind of thoughts. So we're not sure about the future. And so we, we had someone who came in and talked about that. In fact, the first week we said it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to have Jesus and a therapist too. Um, I've never had people ask for a t-shirt I wore before that. That's a first for me. Um, and so, yes, they are available online. I can give you the website called The Happy Givers. And, and so we said that, in fact, we thought it was so true that we had two therapists speak in a row. And uh, so we talked about suicide. And then last week, Kyle talked about burnout, what it looks like to trust God with our life. And so this week, we're going to continue this series. And we're kind of asking this question, what does it look like... Um, when our life, we realize for many of us, we're running hard in one direction. But how often do we take the time to stop and ask the question, am I running in the right direction? Like, I'm running really hard and I'm working really hard at it, but am I going the right way? And so many of you noticed that I wasn't here last week. And if you didn't notice, it's because you weren't here either. Um, that's how that works, right? Uh, so I was in, in Arizona and played golf with a couple of my uncles. And um, the first day we played, we played this this course that my uncle got us on and we had a caddy and it's kind of a cool thing never really done it before and so the caddy kind of tells you where to go and so he'd say no no don't hit over there because then you'll get in trouble like that's that's not a spot you want to hit it you want to aim over there and then when you go to putt I, I would look at a putt because there's like mountains and hills and I'd be like it's gonna go that way right and he'd go no it's going that way I'm like are you sure I get paid to do this <laughs> okay good call um so we'd listen to him and so he probably saved us a few strokes throughout the round right well, the, the next day, we played a course no one in our group had ever played before, and there was a lot of water. And so we'd hit a shot and think it'd be really good, only to find that it was in a pond, and you weren't getting it back. And that happened several times, to be honest with you, for many of us in the group that day. There were a lot of 
balls on that course in the water. See, the day before I had someone who was pointing out the right direction to go. No, 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 don't hit it over there because you're going to get in trouble. No, no, that's too much club, hit a different one. He knew the right direction, he knew the way to go, and the next day we were like blind people trying to play golf. It was not good. This is what it's kind of like for us in life, right? Sometimes it's really helpful if someone can guide us in a direction, guide us in some way, take us in a place that we can find better, but often we find ourselves by ourselves, going in directions that we're not sure where we're going to end up. We thought it was going to be good, only to find out later it really was not good at all. See, the reality is often this, that we need someone not to just journey with us, but to point out better ways. That's really what our connect groups are all about, by the way. It's something about going along together, and sometimes some of us have experienced something that others of us have not yet, and so we hope that you're thinking seriously. Uh, there's still more groups you can sign up in the foyer today before you leave if you're interested. But sometimes we get to see stories of other people and how they really shape for us new directions and different opportunity. And we begin to see, learn from their stories and go, oh, I don't want to repeat that, or I do want to repeat that. And so one of the things that happens for us is that sometimes we're not sure there's anybody walking with us. We just feel alone. We're not sure the direction we're going. We just are not sure we know how to get there. So serious to sit around a couple ideas I think are important for us. It's okay for us to have a counselor. It's okay for us not to have it together. It's okay to struggle. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to even be angry with God. But what do I do with those things? I mean, have you ever felt like you're trying to do all the right things and nothing is working out? Or maybe you've experienced in life, you've been doing all the right things and you've been getting all the right results and all of a sudden you didn't quit doing the right things but the results are no longer good. And you're not sure what's going on. And you don't know what to do with that. Maybe you have battled anxiety or depression. Maybe you fought suicidal thoughts. Maybe you don't know what's going on inside of you at times and you feel like you're alone and there's nothing of hope for you out there. And sometimes when we're in that state, there's a story of a guy named Job, and Job might be for us a story that's helpful for us when we find ourselves in places and situations where we don't want to be. See, Job um, is described as this person, you know, the patience of Job. By the way, those people who say that haven't read the story. Job doesn't have a lot of patience. He's experienced a lot, but here's kind of this, the story. So in the beginning, I'm going to read this from Job chapter 1. I worship on the screen as you read with me. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. The story begins, in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. 
Job, if you didn't catch that, Job was the kind of guy who, he just wanted to make sure that his kids were in right relationship with God and did everything he could. I mean, he went above and beyond. He would offer sacrifice in case they sinned. They may have done nothing wrong, but just in case. He was righteous, and everybody knew he was righteous. He was in right relationship with God. But when we begin to see in the story, something happens. It says we know that he lived in Uz, which was in the east. And if you know the story of Adam and Eve, you know that when they were kind of asked to leave the garden, they went to the east. They settled in the east. And so here's what we know. East of Eden in the Bible became a picture of where life is broken. East of Eden in the Bible became a picture of where life was broken. So here's Job, this man who is righteous in right relationship with God. He has all, he has done everything right. And we see, it looks like Job's been blessed. He's got all this stuff, but God's given Job a wonderful life. And so the, the understanding of most people was this, that the amount of blessing Job had experienced was directly proportional to the amount of faithfulness Job had, the amount of obedience Job offered. The land of Uz is a place of trouble. The place where not everything goes right. Uz is the place where suffering comes. It's the place where things are not good. Uz is the land of not okay. So Job's called this righteous man. So we see kind of there's two kind of things happening in the story. And so we see kind of the separate scene in which, in which God and Satan are kind of having this conversation. And Satan begins to sound like some of our friends sometimes if we try to follow Jesus. He says, well, here's the thing. God, he doesn't really love you. Job is only in a relationship with you for what he can get out of it. And so here's the thing. Job's not really righteous. You've just given him all this stuff, so why wouldn't he love you? Why wouldn't he choose to live a life falling after you? Because he's got everything he would ever need. He doesn't really know God's love. He doesn't know really the depth that you care for him. And, and Job's going, and God says to, to Satan, you don't understand Job. <laughs> My man loves me. He knows me. He knows how good I am to him. He knows it's not because of what he has done. It's because of how good I just am. So he goes, you want to bet? I'll show you. Watch what happens. So Job, Job loses everything. And I mean everything. His livestock, his wealth, his servants, even his children. Job says these words in chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. And he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrong. See, Job knows that the character and nature of God is love. You go, well... But all this bad stuff happened. God could have stopped. Yeah, God could have stopped a lot of things, but that's not love anymore. Just like some of you have been in relationships with someone who's abusive in the relationship. They try to control you in of your love. And God cannot love us if he controls every outcome of our life and every outcome in the world around us. And that's what Job understands is this is who God is. And so Job's not even done yet. His body begins to have these sores that are all over himself and he uses shards of pottery to kind of like make it feel better. And then we see these words in Job chapter two, hear the words from his wife. His wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Should we accept good from God and not trouble? And all this, Job did not sin in what he said. 
Job's own wife said, man, just curse God and die. John Austin, one of the early church fathers in the fourth century, was kind of writing commentary on the book of Job, and he said, God, God left Job's greatest suffering. It was Mrs. Job, right? Mrs. Job was what was left. He took all the other stuff, but he left Mrs. Job. To be fair to Job's wife, she lost everything as well. Job's a mess. And then Job's friends hear about his troubles. They hear what's happened to him, and they think, you know what? We're going to go talk to Job. And, and with all this, it hardly wrecks him, and we'll read that just in a moment. But, but they're going to go talk to him. And so most of the time when we think we're going to go comfort a friend, we show up and we're like, oh, you know, you don't look that bad. Woman, they've like been crying and, and, you know, whatever it is. You look good. Whether we mean it or not, we say it. Job's friends see Job, and he's such a mess. They don't even try to tell him it's good. Have you ever had someone takes one look at you, and they burst into tears, and they rip their garments? It's not going to make you feel much better, but here's what we read in Job chapter 2, verse 11 to 13. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. That is powerful friendship. To sit for seven days. In fact, Judaism, they call it sitting Shiva or sitting for seven. That you'll just go and sit with someone in mourning and you will not, not speak. You'll just be present. I mean, this is the reality for us what Paul says in the book of Romans. He says, mourn with those who mourn. He doesn't say, fix people who mourn. He doesn't say, give advice to people who mourn. He doesn't say, tell people who mourn they shouldn't mourn. They ought to be hopeful that everything is just going to turn out okay. He does say, tell them, if you just have enough faith, if you just pray hard enough, if you just believe enough, you know the kind of stupid things that we say sometimes? His friends don't say those things. They're just silent. This is truthfully why we have connect groups. The hope is sometimes in our suffering that people will just sit with us, bring us food and just be present. So you can do that. You and I can for anybody who's suffering. We're capable of that. It doesn't take much. For some of us to be silent might be hard, but we can do it. And so finally, after seven days, Job speaks. And if he repeated what he said earlier, blessed be the name of the Lord, it'd be like the shortest book ever, but Job is like one of us. And so here's what Job says in chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. This is also why Job did not have a great TV ministry. You don't see a lot of those people cursing the day of their birth or saying God's not been present in ways I really like. We, we don't hear that a lot. He doesn't sound like Tony Robbins or other people who do self-help stuff. But for the next 28 chapters, Job pours out vitriol of anger and hurt and frustration. His anger towards God is staggering and massive. So there's these words at different times. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Hey, God, you're shooting at me, Job says. 
God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. Remember when I said, people say, why is Job? Job's the man of patience. This isn't very patient to me. He's saying this, how long? Why me? Speak up. Make it stop. Where are you? What's going on? It's the hard part for us that sometimes in suffering, we're told to just trust in God's presence. Just wait. He's near, even when it doesn't seem like it. So here's what we see in chapter 30, just a, a picture of Job pouring out his anger. In verse 20 of chapter 30, it says this, I cry out to you, God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death, to the place you appointed for all the living. Surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries for help in his distress. Have I not wept for those in trouble? Has not my soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. These words might be powerful for some of us today. The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. The churning inside me never stops. I'm never okay. I just don't feel okay. This, this whatever it is in me just never seems to stop. And I don't know what to do with it. Where are you, God? Have I not been trying to live for you? What did I do to deserve this? And so many of us then ask this next question. There are so many people who are not seeking after you. And their lives are going so well. Why is my life not going in that direction? Job is beginning to come to grips with the presence of God and the good times and the bad times. What's that look like for us? See, today, um, Chrissy DeVries is going to come and share her story about God's presence and good and bad. A story that walks through our brokenness and about how God works to bring about restoration. racing. <laughs> if I die of a heart attack, I'm so sorry. Um, <clears throat> 2014 was one of the hardest years of my life. <sighs> Everything that year felt uncertain, and the weight and the pressure of life created a form of anxiety in me that never seemed to stop. I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, and my heart would race at all the what-ifs that ran through my mind. I couldn't remember what it felt like to not be anxious all the time. I could not recall a, mo a calm moment or even begin to fathom a mind that didn't race or spin out of control. My thoughts were like a battlefield, and I was just trying to get back to my foxhole without stepping on an emotional landmine that would send me into a mentally debilitating mindset. On my good days, my thoughts would go to maybe you'll be okay, or there's a chance this could go well. And on my worst days, my thoughts traveled to, you can't fix this, you're not enough, 
you deserved this. God has forgotten you. I hated the place I was in, and worst of all, I hated me. I wondered if I was always going to feel like this, and why it seemed no one else was subjected to the mental torture I went through regularly. I occasionally would have a period of time that felt like I might be on the upswing, only to be knocked down twice as hard. There were days that the small things felt like too much, and when something huge hit, all I wanted to do was sleep, run away, or become someone else. Around Christmas of 2014, I began to feel like there just might be a turnaround. Things got a little lighter, and the week between Christmas and New Year, I proclaimed to a couple of my closest friends, 2015 is the year everything changes. I can just feel it. I was 100% right. Things were going to change, but not like I thought they would. And on January 3rd, 2015, three days into the New Year, I was at the darkest point of my life. I was overwhelmed, exhausted, and desperately wanted to be someone or somewhere else. That day, I washed my face in the sink, and when I looked up into the mirror, I was unrecognizable to myself. The girl who at one point had hopes and dreams, light in her eyes, and laughter in her soul was not the girl I saw looking back at me. I felt nothing. I had no dreams and no light. I didn't want to exist. So I prayed. No, I begged God to do one of two things. Let me fall asleep and not wake up, or change me. I couldn't do it anymore, not on my own. I needed help. I needed God's help. I needed him to deliver me out of this. I'd like to say I woke up the next day to sunshine and glitter and unicorns. Anyone who knows me knows that would have been amazing. But I woke up and my first thought was, he chose wrong. He didn't take me. He's going to change me. And I was really hoping for the first one. But I could almost hear God say, I didn't want to take your life. I want to give life. The next six months of my life were like spiritual, mental, and emotional boot camp. I worked hard to change my mindset and my focus, and God was right there with me the whole time. I know because there was a couple times I needed to be mad at him, and he let me, and we worked through that too. I put up sticky notes with I am statements all over my house, and I set reminders with them on my phone. I was determined to hear and know what God said about me how he saw me, and not focus on what I would say or think about me. First thing in the morning, I would see on my mirror, I am a child of God. I am loved. I am healed. I am set apart. I am empowered. I am victorious. I am whole. I had that same list in my kitchen and my car. Before I would do anything, I would say all of them out loud. It took a while to believe them, but I would say them on days I had some belief and on the days that I had none and every day in between. My circumstances were not changing, but my mindset was, and so was my faith and my hope, as well as some seriously needed self-love. I found a podca podcast that I was crazy about that answered tough questions and books that revealed more and more about God. And one day I was listening to a pastor's message on a podcast that stopped me in my tracks, talking about a story from about the Bible that I had heard several times in John 8, 1 through 11 about the woman caught in adultery and how they drug her into the street to be stoned. And Jesus writes in the sand and says to her accusers, he who is without sin, cast the first stone. I had focused on her sin, the stone throwers, and Jesus writing in the sand before, but never where everyone could have potentially been standing. Jesus placed himself in between the accusers and the woman, as if to say without words, to get to her, you have to go through me. I had chills. 
It was the first real reminder that Jesus was standing up for me in my life. That was the, th that, the thoughts that had me crippled could go through him first. And if that wasn't enough, he also says, Jesus stood up and spoke to her. That to me says he looked her in the eye. He made the effort to, see, to make a point to see her. And then Jesus says to her, Woman, where are they? Does no one condemn you? And she replies, No one, Master. She could have said, They don't, but I'm condemning myself. But she said, No one. And here's the best part, the breath of fresh air. Jesus says, Neither do I. In one short, yet incredibly powerful story in the Bible, I saw Jesus stand in between a woman who had been in desperate need of a savior and her accusers, look her in the eye, and help her to come to the conclusion that no one, not even herself or Jesus, was condemning her. That was the day I said, Jesus, I choose you. It has been five years since the day that I asked God to change me, and I haven't looked back since. I still battle with anxiety, but it no longer owns me. I belong to the one who stands in between me and my thoughts and says to get to her, you have to go through me. I am here to tell you, one, you are not alone. Two, don't give up. Keep going. Surround yourself with people and a God who loves you and is for you. And three, Jesus sees you. He loves you, and if you let him, he is also saying to whatever it is in your life that feels like too much, unfair, repetitive, unbearable, to get to them, you have to go through me. Thanks, Chrissy. The story of Job, his friends came to him and after they sat with him, they said, Job, it's your fault. You're not okay, but it's your fault. It's all that you've done. And sure, there are times when that may be our story, but, but a lot of times it's not something we've done. It's something that has happened to us. And so we see later on at the end of the story, Job, Job's friends, God says to them, hey, by the way, I've got this against you. Job was right. And they're like, wait a minute, we were defending you, God. And he's like, I don't need you to defend me. I need you to know that I'm real and that I love and Job, in all his anger and his vitriol, and he was mad at me, Job got who I am right. You got who I am wrong. See, I think sometimes we try to defend God, and God goes, would you stop defending me? Would you love people? So it goes on to say that God blessed Job's latter part of his life more than the earlier part of his life. So Job is as if God, listen, if you wondered, could one person, could one person really stand in the gap and say, no, this is the character and nature and love of God? Can one person answer the question that everything can be okay? Can one person really do that? And we see on the cross that Jesus becomes this one person who says, do you want to see what, it, what true power looks like? It doesn't look like military might. It doesn't look like beating our chest and showing how tough we are. It doesn't look like if you're telling people to put on their, pull their bootstraps up tighter and just suck it up. It looks like going to the place of suffering for the sake of the other. And here's what true love looks like. Satan, it's as if he's saying in the middle of this, well, pay no attention to this guy on the cross. That's not who what real power looks like. That's not it. 
Job is answering this question, this question is this, could a human being hold on to God, faith, love, and goodness when it does not seem to pay off at all? One could and one did, and his name was Jesus. When it looked like God had abandoned him, God had not. And as if Job, in the land of us that we all live, it's as if he heard these words, hang on, keep going, don't let go, don't give up, you have no idea. God is so close. God is so good. You and I, we live in the land of us. We live in a land of anxiety, fear, failure, divorce, relational breakdown, confusion, and hurt. We all do. Why? I don't know. How long will it last? I don't know. Does our response to that matter? More than we could possibly imagine or dream. But this is what Jesus comes to offer us. Redemption, hope, restoration, a fresh start. See, the reality of God's kingdom is not seen in us. It is seen in Jesus. The reality of God's kingdom is not seen east of Eden, but it's seen in his church. The reality of God's kingdom is seen when heaven comes to earth, here and now. This was the prayer of Jesus. That's why Paul's words in Romans chapter 12 are so powerful for you and I. They're really what Christy articulated without even knowing it. Romans 12, Paul writes these words, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I don't have enough time to really talk about this text today. I would love to, but I'm not going to because you would anyway. But I will say this, God doesn't want to leave us not okay. And you ask, well, what's it looked like to begin the journey to take my next step to being more okay than I am today? Let's offer up our whole selves as an act of worship. And it's to have our minds renewed. By the renewing of our minds, what Chrissy said when she began to say, I am a child of God, I am loved. I am enough. These are the words that God has for us. See, Jesus wants us to have a mind renewed by the love of God. And we have a renewed mind by resting in the presence of Jesus. We have a renewed mind by learning in groups. We have a renewed mind by sometimes meeting with a therapist. We have a renewed mind by following the words of Jesus, by allowing God's Holy Spirit to guide us. This one's hard for some of us, especially in this year. We renewed mind when we're shaped more by the words of Jesus than we are by social media or politics. Today, if you want to take your next step towards being okay, and you're not okay, start with what you let shape your mind. See, even Job's friends needed a reminder sometimes we get it wrong. We think we're doing the right thing for God, but in reality, we're speaking into areas where God's going, would you be silent? You got it right. Job's friends did a great job when they were present and silent for seven days. They were awesome. But then they opened their mouths and vomited all over themselves. 
with their words. And here's, here's what God wants to say to us today. It's okay if you're not okay. It's okay if you're mad at me. It's okay if you're angry. It's okay if you're hurt. I can take all of that. But will you just trust that in the middle of that, that I'm present with you and I love you and my goodness is still good for you, even in the places of despair? Whether it's we struggle with anxiety or depression or suicidal thoughts, whether we're struggling in a broken relationship, whether we're not sure what's going on, whether we're not sure why we exist, whether we're not sure if we're loved, God says, will you just trust that I love you? And Jesus says to us through his death and his resurrection, do you know how great the Father's love is for us? And not even death itself can keep me from you. So we're going to sing more songs just a moment, the praise team will come and we'll sing. And these words where it says, I will rise, uh, is this idea that there will be a day when God takes all the places that are not okay and he makes them all okay. Whether it's in this life or in the life to come, God promises to redeem and restore and make all new. And he wants to begin doing it here and now in you 